Well, as I mentioned last week, we're taking a little bit of an extended look at the Trinity by taking a Sunday on each of the persons of the Trinity. I will, in fact, not be here next week, as you've heard and as uh, I, I prayed, but Justin will come and he will continue. He will talk about the Spirit next week. I do appreciate your prayers as I go. Uh, last year, you, you might remember, I gave the manuscript for, or the transcript of what I would say, a little talk. It was not much more than half a page. And they shot it down and said, no, you will not be speaking. So, okay. Uh, they asked me to do it again. So I sent them another. Uh, we'll see. We'll see. But uh, uh, supposedly I'm supposed to speak at a few schools. I'm going there for the graduations of those schools that we partner with there. These are not Christian schools. But uh, they partner with us uh, in an international deal. Um, but, but I would appreciate the prayers as I go and speak in return. Um, <clears throat> today, we're continuing in Revelation. As we said, we've been moving backwards. And I don't know about you, but, and maybe it's because I, I had this thing for Revelation since I, I uh, took up the daunting task to preach through it. You know, the way it started was that we were just doing the seven churches for Lent. Uh, I said, oh, that would be a good Lenten series. And then we just kept going and went through the book uh, thereafter. But I have fallen in love with the book of Revelation. <clears throat> and, um, and chapter one, as was chapter four and so many chapters within the book, but chapter one is just a glorious chapter of the Bible. And of course, it's loaded with imagery. It requires head scratching and contemplation. It, it requires us to think, what, what could he mean here? What, what is this intending to tell me uh, about Jesus? But again, it's worth the effort. It's worth the effort to track down and think scripturally through so much of the imagery that is given in chapter 1 and, of course, throughout the book. Well, last week, we considered chapter 4 the image of God the Father on his throne as we're thinking about the triune God that we serve and we worship. He is one God, but he is three persons. And so last week considered the person of the Father as he's worshipped and glorified in the heavens by the hosts that are gathered around him, all creation represented in the four living creatures and the elders representing the church and the heavenly hosts flying and covering their eyes and singing holy, 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 and the sea of glass and all that wonderful imagery that we considered about the Father last week. And today we come to consider the second member of the Trinity, equally God, right? There are three persons, remember the catechism question, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, and these three are one God, the same in substance, that is in nature, essence, equal in power and glory. The Son is equal in power and glory and essence with the Father, to the Father. He's equally God. And this morning we consider him in Revelation chapter 1. We could have gone other places, but Revelation 1 not only gives us such a glorious image of the Son, but also does it in a very triune way. There's, the, the, there's all the, the Trinity is woven in and through Revelation chapter 1. <clears throat> Here we have the very beginning of the book, the revelation being given of Jesus to John for the seven churches. And we, we reminded ourselves a couple weeks ago that the number seven in Revelation is 
is weighty. It's not random. It's not like, how many churches are there out there in, in, you know, in Western Turkey? Uh, seven. Okay, to the seven churches. No, 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 no. It's much more weighty than that. It's, it's, it was particular that he chose seven churches because seven means completeness and fullness. And so as this letter, this circuit letter, this circuit prophecy that was to, was to go to these literal seven churches and be read, as it's read to seven churches, let the reader understand that this is to the complete church. This is for the whole church. When Jesus holds the seven stars in his hand, which are the angels, some think that means the pastors of the seven churches, or whether it is sort of an angel uh, given to each of these churches, whatever it means, he holds them in his right hand, but he holds the seven angels or pastors of these churches in his right hand. That is, he holds all the church in his right hand. The seven lampstands representing the seven churches are before him, and he is tending to them, but that means he's tending to the whole church, to the complete church. It's right there in his presence, and he holds them in his strong right hand. So that's what we get here. This is the letter given to the seven churches, but, of course, we know it means to all. John introduces himself in verse 4 when he says, John, to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace. And now here comes his opening. We're used to hearing this in the, in the words of Paul when Paul begins his letters. Very, time we get, uh, uh, very many times we get this same greeting. Grace and peace to you. But, but John's uh, opening blessing here is very triune. It's a triune blessing, right? Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. That is the Father. He speaks of the Father there. And down in verse 8, we'll hear the Father take this up again. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. So John grants grace and peace first from the Father and from the seven spirits who were before the throne. Now again, while, while this led you know, the, the, uh, the Florida, Floridian prophet Benny Hinn to say, oh, there must be nine members of the Trinity because you've got seven spirits and you've got a father and a son. Um, I assure you it's a misreading of the text. Okay? The seven spirits does not mean there's seven holy spirits. But when he says the seven spirits who are before the throne, again, he means the fullness of the spirit. The spirit in all of his fullness and in all of his completeness. The Trinitarian blessing. Grace to you and peace from the Father. That is, him who is and who was and who is to come. A play, by the way, on last week's Old Testament reading. Who shall I say sent me? What is your name? And he says, you tell them I am. And here... John teases that out. He is the I am. He's the one who is and who was and who is to come. And the fullness of the Spirit. But then, thirdly, and from Jesus Christ. So here we have this triune benediction, this triune greeting in doxology. But notice the order is not what we're used to hearing. We're used to hearing Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Even you've heard me referring today to the Son as the second member of the Trinity. That's just the way the the Trinity is spoken of and represented, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. John gives an odd twist. He says, Father, Spirit, Son. And to be honest, I don't think there's any deep meaning in that. It's only to say that John 
is wanting now to just delight in, gaze upon, riff on Jesus. And so, greetings to you, grace and peace from the Father and from the fullness of the Spirit, and now, <laughs> the Son. And we're going to go now, and we're going to talk about the Son. He's now, the, the, almost the rest of the passage, the rest of the chapter, is this beautiful description of an interaction with the Son, the second member of Trinity. So hence, the order is not typical. And we get these, this uh, greeting wrapping up with Jesus. And it's here that I want to spend our time. And I want us to think now about how he greets us and the churches in the name of Christ and to delight in the aspects of Jesus that he picked. He does not give us a quick little uh, word about Jesus, but he, he kind of rolls image after image over us. And the theme, I think, here for us that I want us to pick up on, and one that we've looked at before, is prophet, priest, and king. So, grace and peace to you from the one who was and is and is to come, and from the seven spirits who were before the throne, and now verse 5, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler over the kings of the earth, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood, his own blood and has made us kings and priests to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. Even so. Amen. Go home and read over that beautiful introduction of Jesus again and again today. It will be, again, worth it for you. So let's think about this through the lens now of prophet, priest, and king. And again, the order is a little backwards for us. It'll be prophet, king, and priest, but I'll, I'll, I'll do it, prophet, priest, and king. But first, thinking about the son, the role of the son in the Trinity, and here, as in his humanity, it is Jesus Christ. From Jesus Christ first, the faithful witness. That is Christ our prophet. That John, when he looks at the role of Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, he sees him as a faithful witness. Now this is a word, that uh, a term that gets used throughout Revelation. In fact, it's a term into the letters to the churches that must be true of us, must be true of the church. We are called to be faithful witnesses. And the word witness is the word martyr. The, the, the Greek word is martyrion. It's the word from which we get martyr. To be a faithful witness, we feel it because within the church that John was ministering to and the churches that were to come over the next couple centuries, to be a faithful witness meant in many ways to embrace martyrdom. It may not come to you, but it's what it means to be a faithful witness. If not on the grand level, that we think of, of actually, you know, the polycarps of the world, which literally gave their lives for the name of Jesus. In, in some sense, to be a faithful witness of Jesus Christ requires a different level of martyrdom, right? It, it requires us all to pick up our cross. It requires us all to deny ourselves. It requires us all to lose our lives for Jesus' sake and for the gospel's sake, if we are, in fact, to save it. That is, faithful witness comes at a great cost, and we know it does with Jesus. He is the firstborn from the dead, but that is, he died. 
that the faithful witness of Jesus ultimately, ultimately climaxed on the cross. But I love the fact that John picks this up first off in who Jesus is. He is our prophet. And what was the role of the prophet? What does, the, what does a prophet do? A prophet stands between God and man with his back to God facing man. And he, he takes the word of God. He takes the character of God, which man cannot gaze upon. He takes the word of God, the will of God, which man cannot break into. And the Old Testament prophet would hear it from God, right? That the, God would come and reveal it to the prophet. The prophet would turn and face now as a mediator between God and man. He would speak from God to man, thus says the Lord. Hear the word of the Lord. That is, in the Old Testament, the way you heard from God was through the prophet. The way you knew God was through the prophet. He revealed God. He revealed the will, the character of God to the people. And Jesus is our great prophet. He is the great witness to the character and to the will of God. You and I do not have access to God. This is the whole point, I think, of the Old Testament. God is on top of Mount Sinai, and you are at the bottom, and you, if you so much as dare touch the mountain, you will die. Point made. You do not have access to God, to his word, to his will, to his presence. And what you need, the Old Testament teaches us, from Genesis 3 right on is a mediator. You need someone to come in between and to represent God to you. And as we'll see with the priest, to represent you to God. You do not have access to the will of God. You don't have access to the person of God. You need a witness. You need a prophet to come and to reveal God to you. And the Old Testament prophets did this but poorly. Faithfully, but ultimately poorly. They were shadows. They could only speak the word. They were not the word itself. But Jesus is the great prophet. Jesus is the capital F, capital W, faithful witness. Because Jesus is the word itself. In the beginning was the word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus, in his humanity, is God. He reveals as man the true and full character and nature of God. You heard Mark quote in his prayer, I think it was, or maybe, I can't remember. But that word from Hebrews chapter 1. In the former days, God revealed himself in many ways. He's spoken to us in various and sundry ways, prophets and sometimes direct speech and sometimes through this and sometimes through whatever. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. And that is the fullness of the revelation. It does not get fuller than that. There's no greater revelation other than Jesus. It's not like, okay, Jesus, we learned some stuff about. We have all the prophets and Jesus is one of them and what else can we get? Jesus is the full and final revelation of God. He is the faithful witness. The, Paul says in the book of Colossians, Jesus is the image of the invisible God. 
Jesus is the image of the invisible God. You don't see God apart from looking at Jesus. You don't understand God outside of Jesus. You don't get to knowing God except through Jesus. There is no way to the Father, Jesus said, but by me. And we always take that to mean salvation, and certainly it does mean that. But it means much more than that. You don't get to God except through Jesus. There's no like knowledge of God, some broad, full knowledge of God that you can have that does not entail going through the way, the truth, and the life. Philip asks Jesus in a bold moment, show us the Father. Like, this is really great. All this stuff you're talking about, we've been with you for a couple years now. But you know what would be awesome is if you would show us God. Show us the Father. And you know what Jesus says to Philip. Philip, how long have I been with you, man? If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. If you've seen me, you've seen the Father. I am the image of the invisible God. To understand who God is, we must look squarely into the face of Jesus. And frankly, we'll be amazed by what we see because we, we conjure up these ideas of God. And we, we think we don't do this, but we actually do do it. We talked about it in Sunday school last week about how we tend to be deists. We tend to have a, a view of God very distant, high in the sky. I ask my students often, when you close your eyes and picture God, that's a dangerous thing to do, but I put my students in, in danger asking this question. But when you close your eyes and picture God, what do you see? You know, We see an old man. We see a light. You know, all, all things that tap into something that's true about God. But we have these impersonal or distant kinds of images about God. How many people, when you say, when you close your eyes and think about God, what do you say? They say, I see Jesus. It's, it, it's just not how we think. We, we have sort of an abstract view of God. And yes, Jesus is a helpful character to get us saved, to get us right with him. But, but he still, we still do not have the habit of letting Jesus inform our understanding of the Father. When Jesus weeps at the grave of Lazarus, we're like, that's, that's quaint. That, that's really something. But we don't see it as a revelation of the Father. When Jesus is hanging on a cross, we understand it. It had to be done. It's a business transaction. Sin had to be paid for. We get it. It's a very amazing thing that, that he, he came in the form of a bondservant and was obedient unto death. That is shocking and humbling. Yes, but that's God. Jesus says, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. But guess what? He's nothing like you thought he looked like. You didn't think he looked like a beaten savior hanging bloody on a cross. Yet this is the climactic, faithful witness of the character of God. It's in the Son that you see the Father. Not getting around the Son, like, okay, Jesus is nice, but I'd love to get to the Father. I've said it before that it's one of the mistakes we make when we come to the New Testament and we we look for signs in the life of Jesus of his deity. Like, how can I prove his deity by looking for signs in his ministry? And I'm like, you got it all backwards. When you look for signs of deity in the life of Jesus, 
you're assuming that you know what deity is apart from Jesus. I know what deity is. Let me look for signs of it. Divinity. Godness. Let me look for signs of it in the life of Jesus. Oh, look, he calmed a storm. There's proof of his divinity. Oh, do you see how he had knowledge about what they were thinking? There's proof of his divinity. Because I know what divinity is, and I can spot it in the life of Jesus. You've got it all backwards. The point of Jesus is you don't know what divinity is, but he comes to show you. He actually comes to reveal to you who God is. You don't know who God is. Isn't this in part why God's own people crucify him? They didn't know, as Jesus says, weeping over Jerusalem the day of their visitation. Their God shows up and they don't recognize him. We only ultimately know God, the Father, in and through the Son. Do you want to know God? Then focus on the Son. And he will bring you to the Father. That's the reality. He is our faithful witness. And what's interesting is if you look just after this wonderful, beautiful greeting, John says that I'm standing there and I hear this amazing voice. And he says, I turn, it's a voice that's very troubling, like a blasting trumpet. Again, all kinds of Mount Sinai references. Have your Old Testament in your ear when you read Revelation. The, the voice of a, that sounded like many waters or a great trumpet. And he says, I turn to see the voice. Who's speaking? And he gives us this image of Jesus that's nothing like the Jesus we thought. We thought we knew. We, we remember a Jewish carpenter. We, we remember all the pictures in our Bible. There's no picture in my Bible of this Jesus who's got white hair and flaming eyes and bronze feet and this white robe with the gold you know, uh, 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 thing around his chest and holding stars in his hand and a sword coming out of his mouth. John turns to see and he gets this glorified vision of the risen and ascended and ruling Lord Jesus Christ. And what's interesting, one thing regarding the fact that we're calling him prophet, the faithful witness, the revealer of the Father, is the way in which he looks like the Father. Verse 14, interesting. His head and his hair were white like wool, white as snow, and his eyes like a flame of fire. Now you'll remember in Daniel 7, Daniel gets this vision of a horrendous, you know, these beasts that are coming and just ran, you know, rampaging the church and ribs hanging out of the mouth of the bear and, and doing all this destruction and having dominion over the church, the people of God. And then, and then the, the Son of Man comes and all authority is stripped from these beasts and given to him. And he comes, he ascends to the Ancient of Days, to the Father. And he's seated there with all authority and dominion at the right hand of the Father, the Ancient of Days, the one who was and who is and who is to come. And you'll remember that the Ancient of Days, we're told, has white hair, white like wool. In our text, Jesus has hair that's white, white like wool. What is John saying to us? I think part of what he's saying here is that it's in Jesus that you see the Father. Jesus looks like his Father, and you have to have eyes to see it. Remember, by the way, how John sees this. He says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I was in the Spirit. You only see the Father 
by looking at Christ. But you only see Christ rightly when you're in the Spirit. If we're not in the Spirit, we look at Jesus, he looks like Gandhi. Right? We talked about this last week. He looks like, you know, uh, uh, Confucius. He looks like Buddha. He looks like every other wise man who walked the earth and gave us ways to have a good life. Right? Who told us hard things and lived a, a hard life and we, we want to emulate him. That's what he looks like. A Jewish carpenter, wise man, traveling rabbi. If you're not in the Spirit. If you're in the Spirit, he looks like the risen ascended Lord with white hair, flaming eyes, sword out of the mouth, bronze feet, you know, stars in, in his hand. But you have to be in the Spirit to see him that way. But when you see him that way, you see the Father. So first, he's our prophet. And then we'll skip over the midsection and jump to the bottom of this beautiful introduction. Um, to him who loved us, we're still in verse 5, to him who loved us and washed us from our sins in his own blood. He's our priest. He's our priest. Yes, he's the mediator between God and man. He stands with his back to God and he reveals God. You can't get to God, but he reveals God to you. You see the Father in the Son. But he also stands with us. And he faces the Father. And he represents us. We can't go there. I can't go into his presence. I'm gasoline. I'm gasoline. He's fire. I can't come near him. But Jesus stands with his back to me and faces the Father on my behalf and makes us, rec uh, reconciles us to the Father. How? Well, he loves us and he washes us from our sins in his blood. He is the true priest. Oh, the priests of the Old Testament teach us this. But, you know, they take the blood of goats and bulls into the Holy of Holies. They, they can only be in there for a, a couple hours and then they got to get out of there. I mean, they can't stay there. They were shadowy images of what really needs to be done. It's not until John the Baptist points out Jesus and says, Behold, the Lamb of God that truly takes away the sin of the world. It's not until we get this priest to come and bring the true sacrificial blood, the only blood that could ever pay for our sins, and not just bring it into the temple, but bring it into the true holy of holies, where he doesn't stay for a day and get out of there, but where he abides, the book of Hebrews says, forever. He's the only priest who has true access to the holy of holies, and he abides there and continually and perpetually makes intercession, Romans 8, 34, for us. This is the true priest. And we get the images of his priesthood in that grand vision that John gets in the Spirit there in verse th uh, 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands. What are the seven lampstands? They're the seven churches, we're told at the end. So where is Jesus in this amazing trumpet vision? He's in the midst of the lampstands. It's a beautiful image. The risen and ascended Lord is in. Imagine the seven lampstands all around him. And what is he doing? Well, he's doing what the priest in the temple did. He tends to the lampstands. You remember the menorah? The menorah is in the holy place. You go in there, and there's the menorah. And the priest would come in and tend to the lampstands. They would make sure they stay always burning and always lit. Well, what is Jesus doing? Even right now, the ascended Lord, he's our high priest. There in the midst of the lampstands. And he's tending to them. So, <laughs> It's a glorious image.
to think that here we are, little affirmation lampstand, and there we are in the presence of Christ, and Christ in the right hand of the Father is tending to us. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to his feet, girded about his chest with a golden band, dressed in the robes of the priest. He is our prophet, and he's our priest, and then, of course, he's our king. And I could jump now back to the middle of this greeting uh, on the third per- uh, the second person. And from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, and now the firstborn from the dead ruler over the kings of the earth. He's not just our prophet. He's not just our priest. He's our king. And he has vanquished the enemies. We've spent several weeks on the resurrection, so we're primed for this. But let's take it now into the book of Daniel, that great image that we saw there of these horrendous beasts. And you know if you read the book of Revelation, just these horrible beasts that want to come and do damage to the church with all their horns and their eyes and their power and their destruction and the dragon that wants to wage war against the church and all these things. We get a little taste of that in Daniel 7. And Daniel says, man, I'm really troubled by this. This is, this is tough to watch, tough to see. What's going to happen here? But one like the Son of Man, like we have in this glorified vision of Jesus here, appears. And he vanquishes all the enemies. Yes, for a time and times and half a time. Whatever that means. <laughs> and what we know is it's not a full time. It's three and a half. But it's not seven. It's a broken seven, but it's not seven. For an extended time, but not the full time. The church is ravaged by these beasts. That's true. We're living in that right now. We should not be surprised. We should not be surprised. It hurts. We pray against it. We ask the Lord for deliverance. But we should not be surprised when we see the church ravaged by beasts. When we hear about our brothers and sisters in Iraq or in Syria or in Egypt. Or when we see affliction even in this country. It should not shock us. We're in that time and times and half a time. That's what happens. But know this, that the Son of Man has vanquished them, and the time is coming, yea, is near, all things considered, when all dominion and authority is stripped from them and given to him. We've seen it already because he is the firstborn from the dead. He has risen victoriously over the last and final enemy of death, And if death be defeated, then all other enemies are defeated. He's the firstborn from the dead and the ruler over the kings of the earth. All authority, Jesus said at the Great Commission, before he ascended, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Not will be given to me. Has been given to me. The rulers and principalities The beasts of this age are underneath the sovereign authority of Jesus Christ. And when their days are up, it's up and it's over. For all authority has been given to him and he is a ruler, the ruler, over the kings of the earth. Verse 7, behold, he is coming with the clouds. And remember, the coming in Daniel 7 was a coming to the ancient of days. That is, it was an ascending to glory. And John is calling that back. He has come into his glory. Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. All those who follow the beast, all those who put their hope in anything other 
than Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. He is the way that we know the Father. He is the way that we are reconciled to the Father. He is the way that we have victory all of our, all, over all of our enemies. He is the way that we are purified. All of these things are ours in Christ, the second person of the Trinity. Next week, Justin will come, and he will spend a week delighting in the sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit. But again, I encourage you. Last week, I, I in, it was in Sunday school that I recommended the book by Michael Reeves, R-E-E-V-E-S, called Delighting in the Trinity. I love the title, just the title itself. Not understanding the Trinity. You will never fully understand the Trinity. But the title of his book is Delighting in the Trinity. And so we should. And as I said, there's nothing more worthy of your time or attention. So we've seen the Father. We've delighted in the truth of the Son. Go back and read that grand and glorious vision of Revelation 1. He is prophet, priest, and king. He looks like the Father. He delivers us as a priest, and he is the king of kings with the stars in his right hand and the sword coming out of his mouth. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the work of your Son. We confess that oftentimes we imagine you apart from Jesus, but Father, there is no way to you except through Jesus, who is the way and who is the truth. So we thank you for him, our prophet, priest, and king, for the revelation he gives, for the salvation he secures, and by the victory that he brings over all our enemies. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we give you praise. In Christ's name, amen.